Bibles, if you would. Um, Let me announce this before I get started here. Chapter 18 is where we're going, Revelation. Uh, Next week is our observance of the Lord's Supper. So you're going to get part number one of this message tonight, and then in two weeks we'll come back to the second part of it. But please don't forget our regular observance of the Lord's Supper next Sunday night. And I'll be finishing part number two of a message that I began all the way back in July. So you might want to go back and think about that one and figure out what that's all about. But tonight, Revelation, the 18th chapter, and we continue our study here in the 18th chapter, which is the account of the destruction of the economic empire of the Antichrist. This is the world system that has been immersed in commerce. During the tribulation time, the dollar will be deity. Uh, People will be thinking about their wealth. That will be more important to them than even their own souls. Uh, Maintaining their luxurious living is what they'll be most interested in. In chapter 17, we saw the destruction of ecclesiastical Babylon. Uh, That's the killing machine that helped the Antichrist come to power. Uh, That is apostate religion that has been growing since the time that God destroyed the world with the flood. And since that time, it's had its headquarters in Babylon. And the Bible says, uh, tells us that ecclesiastical Babylon, this mother of harlots, is the uh, progenitor of all false religions that the world has ever seen. God will destroy that first, and then he will turn his attention to world government, which is also corrupt. Uh, These two systems go hand in hand, but God is going to destroy ecclesiastical Babylon first, and then he destroys, uh, next thing on his agenda is to destroy economic Babylon. So chapter 17 was the destruction of the uh, religious side, and then chapter 18 is the destruction of the economic political system. Now both of those are called Babylon, and we need to make the distinction between the two. They are intertwined. Many people don't realize it, but God has claimed all along that materialism is a god. We tend to think that the only idols there are are things that we carve out of stone, little statues that people make and bow down to those. But really an idol is anything that you put in place of the Lord. Anything that you put in front of him becomes your idol. And the scriptures teach that materialism itself is a god. Jesus taught that in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. He said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And so there we see that, according to Jesus, mammon is a master. That means money. That means the material system. And that's a master just like God is a master. And it's impossible for you to serve both. And there are many Christians who think that they can. They think that they can mix those two things, and they can serve one and also serve the other. But according to Jesus, here he says that one of those is going to take a back seat. You can't serve both of them. One of them you will love, and the other you will despise. And so there is no mixture of the two, because you won't do both. You won't love both. It's either one or the other, just like there's heaven or hell. It's one or the other, just like there's that broad way and the narrow way that we've been talking about. It's one or the other, just like there are two houses to be built, one on the rock and one on the sand. It's one or the other, just like that path of destruction or the path that leads to eternal life. And what you can't do, you cannot walk both paths at the same time, and you cannot live in both houses at the same time. And we'll see in just a moment that God is going to destroy that economic house, and you don't want to be living there when he does it. 
So we look in Revelation chapter 18, and our text verses tonight are verses 4 through 8, and we'll spend our time really in verse number 4 tonight. He says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double, according to her works. And the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself, and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. That is the judgment of Babylon. Now there's a statement there then of certain judgment, and it was a statement that was indisputable. It is as if it's already been done. Whatever is in the mind of God has always been in the mind of God, and so if God knows it, it's as certain as if it's already, if it already has come to pass. Now here we see that there is a second angel that declares that anyone who does not want to be involved in the judgment of Babylon should get out as quickly as possible, because when the judgment comes, it will be too late to make a decision to leave. Now we notice then in verse number 4 that there is a call to separate. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Uh, during the tribulation, there will be a great revival like the world has never seen before. Uh, thousands, perhaps millions of people will come to Christ. And we've seen in earlier studies that even though there is so much calamity that goes on during this time, and God's judgments are being poured out, yet God hasn't forgotten the world. He does give people the opportunity to repent of their sins. Uh, the Bible teaches us that Israel, during that time, will be turned back to God. And one of the uh, ways that that's done is that God calls 12,000 special witnesses out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are 144,000 people, 144,000 Jews that spread out all over all of the earth uh, teaching the gospel of Christ. In chapter 11, there are two special witnesses that God calls, and for three and a half years, they also preach the gospel of Christ. They're able to do many miracles. God preserves them throughout that three and a half years until their time of witnessing is over. And then in chapter 14, there was that unprecedented move that we've never seen since the world began. And this is where the gospel is actually put into the hands of an angel. And so there is an angel that flies in the sky so that from anywhere in the world... They can hear his voice as he declares the everlasting gospel of Christ. Now, you put all of that together, 144,000 witnesses, the two witnesses in chapter 11, the angel that preaches the gospel from the sky, and you combine that with millions of souls that have been raptured, graves that are opened, and what you have is the formula for a salvation of souls that has never been seen since the world began. And so there will be people uh, saved that are living on the earth during the tribulation period. So we have all these people who come to know Christ. And a question we might ask is, where do they all end up? Now, ultimately, of course, they'll end up in heaven. But where are they going to be while they're living on the earth? Well, we studied earlier also that those in Israel, many of them will have to hide out from the Antichrist. They'll go into the wilderness where, where they'll have to uh, 
uh, stay and be protected from, by God. But there are going to be many Christians, I think, that will actually live in Babylon. And I think that's true because we look at Christianity today and we see that people are not persecuted. Here in our country, there's no real persecution for following Christ. And yet we still see Christians that live in Babylon. And so what do you think will happen when you have people in times of persecution, when there is an easy way out for them, what will they do? Well, I think there will be many of them that will take the easy way out, and they'll take the path of least resistance, and so they will succumb to Babylon. I don't think that they'll go all the way in. The Word of God has already promised that they will never follow the Antichrist. I mean, they are preserved by God, so they can't completely apostatize. And that's true of every Christian. A person who's truly a Christian can never fully apostatize from the faith. And so these people will live in Babylon, but they'll be marginal Christians. They'll live on the edge, and they'll take the comforts that are there without stepping all the way into that system of the Antichrist and becoming a part of it. And so we see, just like today, there are many Christians who have flirtatious affairs with the devil. And so I think that there will be people that will live in Babylon... And they are warned here in Scripture to get out of Babylon before the destruction comes. Now, as always, there is a lesson here for us. We never take the Bible as something that was given to people that live in a different time, whether that's in the past or in the future. The Bible is given to us. And so what we do is we take the Word of God and we study and we learn how to apply it to our lives. And that's what preaching is for. That's why I'm here Uh, preaching the Word of God. That's why you take your personal study at home and you read the Bible, because you want to find out how does Scripture apply to your life. Well, that reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to turn there, if you would. We're going to look at this for just a moment. The Apostle Paul was speaking of Israel as they left Egypt. And as they were leaving that place and on their way to the Promised Land, they were in the wilderness... And many of them wanted to turn back to go to Egypt. And Paul has something to say about this. And he he lets us know why these kinds of stories are actually recorded in the Bible. And I think it's good for our understanding to see why that there are certain things that have made the scriptural record. Now, everything that ever happened in the world is not recorded in the Bible, of course. Everything that happened to God's people is not recorded in the Bible, But there are certain stories that are left there so we can learn something from them. So we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 6, and Paul has just spoken about how Israel uh, left Egypt and how they had fallen into sin. And he says in verse number 6, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And so Christians are constantly being tempted to go back into sin. And so we have a warning here that what happened to Israel could happen to us. If we don't separate from sin, if we don't come out from sin, then we could end up in destruction in our sins. And this is why there is a warning to 
separate from Babylon. And it's good for us to understand that we have to heed that same call. When God calls us to separate from sin, we must do that, or we can be caught in the destruction of it. I want to give you three areas tonight in which God says that we are to separate. And I think that we can find these in the Scriptures. First of all, there is physical separation. In other words, get your body out of it. Physically, remove yourself from the place where you are tempted with sin. Don't be in a place where you are continually being tempted. Now, in this instance, we find that physical destruction would come to this city, and those that were physically there would be killed. I mean, the saved as well as the lost, if they remained in Babylon, they would be killed. And so you can be physically in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if you are, even as a Christian, the consequences will fall on you. Those consequences come on the saved as well as they do upon the lost. Now, that's a really good lesson that we try to teach to young people. Uh, We try to teach our teenagers that when you hang around with the wrong crowd, that you're going to get busted just like they get busted. And if you go with the wrong people, uh, you don't have immunity from all of their temptations. And so if you continually put yourself uh, in that place of temptation, then eventually the evil of those places will actually become evil in your person. And so we try to teach the young people about that. We warn them. But at the same time, we find that there are many adults that haven't really learned very much about the mistakes of their youth. And they should have enough sense that they know physically they ought not to be in a place where they can be tempted with sin. David said... I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. David made a very wise statement there. He said, don't be in the presence of evil. He didn't want to be in the presence of evil. And if you're not there, then you won't do evil. Well, we have a really good example of physical separation in Scripture, and we can apply this, I think, in a spiritual way. I want you to turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 19. And you may remember this story. This is about Lot and Abraham. And Lot separated wrongly at first, but then he was forced to make a right separation later. And that was when he separated from Adam, or from Abraham, rather, who was a godly influence on him. So Lot separated from Abraham, and he went down to Sodom, which was a very vile and wicked place. And God was determined that he was going to destroy Sodom because of that gross immorality. But the problem with that is that Lot was living there. Now, Lot was a saved man. And we wonder how sometimes that, how, how that could actually be possible, that he was saved. But Scripture says that he was a saved man and that he vexed his soul from day to day with all the wickedness that took place in the city of Sodom. And so if Lot had been left there when God destroyed the city, then Lot would also be destroyed. And so God told Abraham destruction was on the way, and God sent two angels to Sodom to pull Lot out of that place. And there's an interesting way in which this was done. Notice verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him out without the city." Now, God said that he was going to destroy Sodom, and so he sent two angels to get Lot out. They told Lot to get up and get out of that place, but Lot lingered. 
And for some reason, he didn't think it made much sense for him to get out of Sodom right away. And so he still lingered there. He wasn't in a hurry to physically separate from the place. And when he did, those two angels just grabbed hold of him, and they just physically took him out of there. And the Bible says here that God was merciful to take them out. And so they wouldn't physically removed. And so what God did was to physically remove them. But that doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes God does not move people out of the traps of the world. Instead, he lets you stay in them. And when you do, you're caught in the destruction of them. And then there are times when God does take people out of the way. And when he does that, it's not always a pleasant thing the way that God does it. So God says that you must physically separate from evil. Get your body out of a place. Don't be in places where you can be tempted by sin. Now, I want you to hold on there to Genesis chapter 19 for just a minute because I want to talk to you about another type of separation, and this is mental separation. You see, you can be physically away from an evil place, but it's still possible that your mind is there, that your mind longs for all of that junk that you shouldn't have. Now, we notice here in verse number 17, it says, And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Now, go down to verse 25. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Lot, his wife, and his two daughters were taken out of Sodom, and they were told when they left to forget it all. The angel said, don't look back. Flee the city. Don't don't even think about what was left there. But Lot's wife was still in love with Sodom. She didn't give up easily. She was being pulled away from the evil of that. She was being allured by the temptations that were still there. She loved living in Sodom. She loved the sin that was there. She loved the material success that they had there and everything that went along with it. And so her mind was still in Sodom, even though her body had been physically removed from that place. And so when she looked back, the Word of God says that she was instantly turned into a pillar of salt. You know, there are many Christians that know that they cannot physically be caught in Sodom or physically caught in Babylon. And so they separate it from it physically. They will do that, but their minds are still in that same old place. And so they hide behind a facade, they hide behind what they pretend to be, they put on the right clothes, they have the right haircuts, they may even come to church all of the time. And so they shut themselves in in a house of holiness, but actually there's evil that lurks in their hearts. They may not live in Sodom, but they sure do wish that they could. And so their minds are filled with all of this evil, even though their bodies don't actually commit the act. You know what the Bible says about that? Jesus said that when you lust in your heart that you've already committed adultery. And that was just one example that he gave of sin. So anything that you desire to do that is sinful and you desire to do that to God, it's as if you have already committed that act. Now the mind is to be purified from all of that. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in holiness or righteousness and true holiness. And so you must mentally separate, 
You must physically separate from sin. And if you don't, then what happens is that the mental can turn into the physical. And what I mean is what you think about is what you will end up doing. And I've seen that happen so many times in the church. I remember one time there was a couple in the church that was a little flirtatious with each other. Both of them were married, but they explored with flirting speech and flirting eyes places where they physically did not dare to go. And yet they kept that up. They kept on talking about it. They kept flirting a little bit here and there. They kept exploring the deed mentally, but not actually doing it. And so they, act, they ended up in an affair. Both of them left their spouses. They ended up in that affair, and the, and the moral to all of that is if you are not careful to guard your mind, then what will happen in your mind will also happen in your body. You're, you're tempted to physically enter into those sins that you think about. So physically, you may not be in an evil place, but if your mind is there, it leads you into sin. James wrote in James chapter 1, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Well, there's a third call for separation that we find in Revelation 18 verse 4, and that is judgmental separation. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Physically and mentally separate from Babylon, says this angel, and then you will not experience her plagues. Now, the plagues are God's judgment upon the people of Babylon. If you'll turn back just a couple of pages to chapter 16, we can find here what the angel is talking about. Uh, The judgment on Babylon occurs at the pouring out of the seventh vial. And remember, there are seven vile judgments that were given under the seventh seal. And those vials are the final plagues that God brings upon the earth. And in rapid succession, each of those vials are open, each of the plagues are poured out, and God's wrath is expended upon the world. And what God is doing, he's bringing this, this Antichrist, the kingdom of the Antichrist, to a very swift conclusion. And so in the 17th verse of chapter 16, it says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now here in verse number 19, the scripture says that the great city was divided into three parts when the seventh vial was poured out. I don't want you to be confused about this because the great city in that place is actually speaking of of Jerusalem, not Babylon. There's an earthquake that actually splits Jerusalem and it changes the city. And that's what makes it possible for uh, the huge millennial temple to be built. The the temple mount is expanded. And so this huge temple can be built on on the temple mount. And that's because the topography of Jerusalem changes. But Babylon is also mentioned in verse number 19 as great Babylon. And so judgment 
falls upon her as well, and the wickedness of Babylon is remembered by God. And it says here that he will give her the cup of the fierceness of his wrath. And that's what we see happening in chapter 18. The judgment comes. Now, verse number 21 says a part of that judgment is great hailstones that fall on the earth. Hailstones about, the, about 100 pounds in weight begin to fall on men, and those hailstones crush people to death. And so those that are in Babylon will be hit by those hailstones. And so when the judgment comes, everyone who is left in Babylon will suffer the consequences of God's wrath. And so the angel says that if there are any of God's people in that place, that you need to get out when judgment comes, because if you don't, it will be too late. And so whether they're saved or lost, they will be killed by the plagues. Now, we think about that for just a moment. Those that are saved, that are living in Babylon, will lose their lives, but they will not lose their souls. And just like Lot, if he had stayed in Sodom and he hadn't gotten out of that place, God would have rained down that fire and brimstone upon Sodom, and Lot would have died with all of the lost people that were in the city. But Lot would not have lost his soul. And that's because he was a child of God. Now, the lost, they lose both their lives and their souls. But God's people don't. So God says, or the angel says to these people, if you want to live, if you want to go into the millennial kingdom alive, then you must get out of the city. Now, I'd like for us to notice a couple of more observations, and then we'll be done tonight. I want you to go over to Jeremiah chapter 51. The destruction of Babylon was foretold in the Old Testament. And in Old Testament prophecy, we often find a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And in chapter 51 of Jeremiah, there's a warning for God's people to get out of Babylon. Uh, when the exiles returned from captivity, not all of them actually wanted to leave Babylon. You know, they were established there. They'd been there for quite some time, and so many of them had put down roots. They had been absorbed into the Babylonian system, and so when, God's peop when uh, God told them to get out, they didn't want to go out. They didn't want to leave there. They wanted to stay. Now, we've already talked about this, how that God used Babylon to accomplish his purposes. Now, God uses the governments of the world. We've studied that. All of that is under his control. And so even when Israel was being sorely oppressed by the Babylons and by other nations, by Babylonians and by other nations, that God was actually the one who was directing that. He was using that as chastisement upon his people. But some of them did not want to leave Babylon. And God told them, you need to get up and you need to get out because Babylon has served God's purpose and it will be destroyed. And we read about it in chapter 51. In verse number 6, it says, Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her, take balm for her pain. If so be, she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her, and let us go everyone into his own country, for her judgment reacheth unto heaven, and is lifted up even to the skies. Now there you see the command to flee in verse number 6, because judgment is coming. In verse number 7, there's a declaration of Babylon's purpose. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand. So God used Babylon. And then in verse number 8, it says, Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. 
And that sounds very, very much like what we've just read in chapter 18 of Revelation. So he says, get out quickly. The judgment is coming. And in the next message, we're going to explore that part of it a little bit more. Uh, Babylon's destruction comes quickly. It came quickly in the past. God wiped it out in almost an instant. Remember that story? I, I told you a little bit about it maybe a week or so ago, about how that God took the kingdom from Belshazzar. That's when he saw the writing on the wall, the handwriting on the wall. And in that very same night, God took the kingdom away from him. And so God is going to do the very same thing with Babylon in the future. Its destruction will come very quickly. So we have here then a call to separate. Get out physically, get out mentally, get out because you don't want to be caught in that judgment. Well, there's one more scripture that we need to look at, and this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you turn there, we've seen how that uh, God gives Old Testament examples to help us to understand what he requires. And what I would do, I would much rather look at a Bible story as an illustration uh, than I would to listen to some guy go on for 15 minutes about some personal antidote where he's the hero of the story. I'd much rather get my information from Scripture. And I remember a conference that we went to a few years ago when the preacher did nothing at all during a sermon but tell stories, and he turned out to be the hero of every one of them. Brother Jorge counts the numbers of time that I mentioned hell in a sermon. And there's one, mark it down, I just mentioned that one. Uh, he writes all of those down. But you'd have to have a tablet with 100 pages in it to mark down the number of times that this guy said I in his sermon. Uh, that's why I like to use biblical examples rather than personal ones. But 2 Corinthians was, of course, written to the Corinthians. And one of the problems of the Corinthian Christians was that they were immature. They'd slip back into their uh, old lifestyle, the old culture that they lived in, and that was a very vile culture. And so Paul had to straighten them out, and he tried to get them to separate from all of that. Uh, it was killing their lives spiritually, and so he reasons with them that it doesn't make sense for a person who's born in the Spirit of God, someone who has been changed, to go back and to live in that old life. Now, Brother Ekno, for you men that were with us during the men's conference, would call that a freak of nature. That's what he calls it. That's a dog meowing, according to him. Christians don't go back and live in the old way that they used to live. And this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 6. He says in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, you'll find two instances in Corinthians where Paul, in the Corinthian letters, where Paul speaks about being the temple of the Lord. Now, they're actually different temples. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and in that scripture, Paul is talking about the church. He means that the whole church together, that we are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the mention that we have here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is not talking about the church as a whole. Here he's speaking about the individual Christian. And he says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are God's temple. You are the habitation of the Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And Paul's reasoning is that if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then you can't clutter up that temple with idols. You have to separate from the idols. You can never have an idol in God's temple. And so if that idol is sex, then you have to get rid of that. If that idol is anger, you must get rid of it. If it's pride, you have to get rid of that. And also, if your idol is materialism, you must get rid of that. You cannot have that idol in God's temple. Now, what God will never permit, he never permits those idols to stay in his temple. And the way that you get an idol out is that you separate from it. You don't flirt with it. You don't entertain it. You don't pal around with idols. You separate from them. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And that's the very same message that we find in Revelation chapter 18. It's a message that's given to the, for the future, that all of those Christian people, that if they have to be living in Babylon, if they have an idol in their life of that materialism, of that God that they've set up there, they must separate from that because God is going to destroy the city. And the spiritual implications of that are, we as the people of God, we cannot have the world on our minds. We cannot let that live in God's temple. We have to get rid of it. And so if you're living in Babylon, you must separate from it. Don't live there because Scripture says God will destroy it. And when he brings that house down and you're in it, then you will be caught in that destruction. But there are many Christians who are living in Babylon, and the effects of Babylon are is seen in their lives. There, there's the insecurity that they have, the doubts that they have, depression that goes on, the anxiety that they have. And just like God sent an invading pestilence into Israel so that they very quickly and numbly fell to the oppression of the Babylonians, God is doing that with Christian people today. He lets that invading pestilence comes in, come in, and what happens is it will destroy your life. And you have to work to keep that out. You have to bear a testimony every day for Jesus Christ. You have to fight against the temptations of the devil so that you don't let those invading pestilence take you over. The anxiety, the fears, the depression, insecurities, and all of that that goes along with it. And so we are encouraged to do, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are not to lust as the children of Israel lusted. We are not to commit fornication as they committed fornication. We are not to tempt Christ as they tempted Christ. We are not to murmur as they murmured. God says, get out of all of that. Separate from all of it. Get the idols out of God's temple and let the Holy Spirit dwell there alone. That's God's call to us, a call to separate from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the lessons that we learn here in Revelation. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to your people tonight and help us to be very, very much aware of those idols that we have set up in our lives how that we have let things take over the, your place in our lives. And we see this even as we talked earlier tonight about uh, Christians who can't seem to make it on Sunday nights, those who can't make it on Wednesday nights. We know there are lots of good reasons why people don't come, but most of the reasons, quite frankly, and we all know it, are other idols that have been set up in our lives so that other things are much, much more important to us than hearing God's word. And I pray, Lord, that every Christian would be aware that the Holy Spirit dwells in this temple of our body. He's here all of the time. And if he's there, then we, not to, we ought to honor the fact that he is there. And we ought to keep those idols out of his sacred place.
Lord, bless your people tonight. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.